Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the very distinguished war correspondent and a senior correspondent for The Observer, Ed Volumey, whose new book is a sort of part memoir, part meditation, I guess, called When Words Fail, A Life with Music, War and Peace. Ed, welcome. Now, your title points to a kind of conundrum in this. You know, you're, you're a man of words, you're a reporter, you're a writer, and here you're talking about something that's very important to you that kind of goes slightly beyond words. How do you, how do you kind of start writing that sort of book? Thank you, Sam, and it's an honour to be here. It's, it comes from Samuel Beckett and his play Happy Days. Words fail, says Winnie in the play. What shall we do when even words fail? And it's a damn good question for any of us, and especially anyone who tries to write. And, uh, you know, what, what indeed? It's, uh, it's a primal question, I think. And one of the things we do is we turn to music. We always have done. That really is from the beginning of humankind, you know, and whether it was imitating birdsong or banging the drums of war is debatable, probably both. And that, in a way, that that consideration propels the book, uh, because it is a book about the beauty of music, but also about music during war, in war, against war, for peace. And so it's a memoir in that regard. You know, I think memoir can be a vanity, you know, those books that one has with sort of 16 pages of photographs, all with the author in them, in, in various guises and poses and company. It's not that. It recalls, I suppose, a life that isn't special, but it's been, you know, a bit too interesting sometimes, wherein war has been too much my work, far more than I want it to have been, and music has always been my great love. So it's an attempt to entwine those two things, really, with, as you point out in your question, the, the automatically, per se, self-defeating ingredient that it has to be done in words which, by definition, fail to express what music can express. And that's what it's about, really. I think it's music and the inexpressible. Music and the truths and feelings and emotions and confusions and exhilarations and horrors that words simply don't do. I mean, one of the things that's, that sings through the book is how moved you are and connected you are to music and have been from a very young age. I mean, you also, there sort of seem to be two traditions available to you because you're, you're clearly deeply responsive to classical music and you're very knowledgeable about it and right knowledgeable about it. But at the same time, your childhood, your adolescence, you describe as being sort of soundtracked by this you know, very exciting period. I think you're sort of in your mid-60s now, or early 60s. So you were sort of, you know, you saw Jimi Hendrix perform, you you know, jazz, blues, all that sort of explosion of music in the sort of 60s and 70s was was your meat and drink, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you raise an initial point. <clears throat> I mean, one of my least favourite words in, in, in our now debased English language is genre. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. And you, our audience, hopefully today, is, as, as lovers of books, will understand that, you know, which is your favourite genre? Uh, you know, Lucretius or Albert Camus? What a stupid <laughs> question. And I feel the same about music. There is no classical tradition in my family. Uh, my brother's the only member of the family who actually sort of learned an instrument young, the flute, and has stuck with it. But yes, I had the sort of good fortune at one level to, to grow up in Notting Hill when it was Notting Hill in the 50s and 60s, and that's a very different place 
to, to what it looks like nowadays. And the soundtrack to our home, our family home, my parents were in the sort of what one might call the jazz generation, which was a layer of immigrants to Labrook Grove that followed that of the Irish, the Spanish refugees, the West Indians, that the government's now trying to turf out, and the Moroccans and so on. So, you know, we didn't have to call it diverse or multicultural, it just was. And uh, we had the Beatles, because mum's from Liverpool and, you know, a place that was considered a joke, really, if you moved to London in the 1940s until they came along and made it the centre of the universe, so she enjoyed that. And when I was a child at home, ill from school, my mother was doing her now quite well-known children's books at yes. downstairs, Shirley oh, Hughes, Shirley Hughes indeed. Uh, so was Dogger one of your pets? Dogger was indeed my pet. Dogger exists, <laughs> he's real. I, it, but it was the teddy bear I lost, that's what the story's based on. But she would be at home listening to Billie Holiday and Bessie Smith and Edith Piaf, the blues, jazz. So I got to learn a lot about Mama that way, but even more about the blues and jazz. And, you know, one of the few advantages of being the age you kindly specify, <laughs> mid-60s, is that I'm old enough to be able to say that my first concert was Louis Armstrong, with Dad, and the first concert to which I took myself was Sun House and uh, Bucker White, B.B. King's uncle at the Hammersmith Odeon when I was 13. So I loved the blues, adored the blues and jazz, and by the time I got to be just 16, yes, I caught Jimi Hendrix at the Isle of Wight. I was actually born in the street in which he later died, Lansdowne Crescent in Notting Hill. And What stands out to you from the Isle of Wight performance? Do you? It's a good question. One has to remember that that weekend was a sort of a bombardment of talent. I mean, in, within 36 hours, there was Miles Davis, The Who, The Doors, Joan Baez, Jethro Tull, Leonard Cohen. I mean, it's absurd to think of that now. Hendrix stood out, A, because he was so scary. My mother said on Desert Island Discs that Billie Holiday was from some dangerous other world when she first heard, I must have that man. And Hendrix was like that. The question on his first album, are you experienced? Well, I absolutely was not. I was a virgin. I'd never smoked pot. I, I'd, I'd only been drunk once. So he was, you know, broadcasting from the far side of some checkpoint that I was never going to cross and still haven't. But he, he's pure transgression. Famously described as too black for Greenwich Village, too white for Harlem. You know, his inspirations were, unsurprisingly, Howling Wolf, Muddy Waters, but more interestingly, Bob Dylan, and as I've later found out, you know, Mahler and Handel and Bach. And, and so he is pure transgression in every way. He'd also served rather unsuccessfully in the, in the 101st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army. Yes, I think you um, can still get his record, can't you? Indeed. <laughs> you know, unsurprisingly, he was, he was a rotten soldier. And the writer Paul Gilroy insists that it's very important to see Hendrix as someone who sort of basically <laughs> failed and turned his back on the military life to, to play what in the book I call peace music. His song, his song, his piece, his thing called Machine Gun stands out because it was Andrew, well it was the searing kind of anthem of my generation against war in Vietnam but he of course being Hendrix amplified that there's, a, there's an introduction to, to him playing it in Berkeley when he says there's all the cats fighting the war in Vietnam uh-huh, and also people fighting wars within themselves so it, it's about all it's about every kind of war and so far as I know he'd never been in combat himself and I hadn't yet then but one knew that this is what war feels like and sounds like. I knew that then, and boy, I know it now. What are the things you mentioned that you got, you know, you learned later that he was influenced by Mahler and so on? I mean, a really interesting part of this book and a very enviable one is that you don't just do a sort of 
you know, I was listening to this song when I was 16 and it reminds me of X style Desert Island Disc. You kind of turn it into a journalistic project because you've tracked down, you know, the people who are interested, you go and find them. You know, you got the last interview with B.B. King. You took your daughter to a Patti Smith concert and met Patti Smith. You know, even Robert Plant's guest. You, I mean, is that a sort of, the sort of work of a crazed fan or do you see it as a kind of journalistic project? Well, it's both. I mean, I am both a crazed fan and I try to be a journalist. With regard to, you know, assembling the cast of the book, obviously I owe an enormous amount to, to the people who commissioned articles for The Observer. A lot of the stuff for The Observer and The Guardian has been adapted for the book. So I was lucky in that regard. You know, I could, I could ring up Bob Weir of The Grateful Dead as The Observer, not as just some crazed fan who wants to write a book. Likewise, B.B. King. I mean, that was just a marvellous stroke of luck. Uh, sticking with the blues, you know, through a mixture of, of effort and energy and, and, and luck, I saw a lot of them. Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf, Otis Rush, that generation. But there was one that somehow, you know, circumstances had, had deprived me of, and that was, and that was the best of them all, B.B. King, the last of his generation who can say that his great-grandparents were slaves and that as a nine-year-old boy he was pushing a hoe and a, and a mule through a, through a cotton field. And the Observer magazine got a call on a Monday afternoon saying that if, if Ed can get to Indianola, Mississippi by nine o'clock on Wednesday morning, he might talk to you. Well, sometimes you just have to take the risk. Uh, took the flight, missed the connection, drove through the night to Indianola, stole a couple of hours sleep, got to the pavement, manager, I haven't got a request for any interview. He opened a B.B. King memorial sidewalk in his hometown and there was a chair next to him that one of the young reporters from the local radio vacated to take a phone call. I thought, that's mine. And sat down and said, I, I'd talk to you if I may. And he said, I don't do this. I said, yeah, but you, I think you've heard I come all the way from England for this. I, said, I just want to ask you one question. I heard your uncle Bucker when I was 13 and I heard that you, you tried to teach you the slide guitar and you couldn't do it and that's why you invented the butterfly. It's a, it's a sort of tremolo thing that's unique to B.B. King where he waves his, 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 his hand to get an effect. He said, you play guitar? I said, no, no, I, I, I just love the blues. Oh, well, let, me, let, me, let me just get this straight. And then you got him. So and I think that's one of the things about talking to musicians. And yes, I have set out to talk to them. And, and you know, the ones that, and, and the many, I'm glad to say, that weren't for The Observer, that were especially for the book, I did seek out. Yes, absolutely. You know, sort of, I made it, this may sound like ligging, it isn't, you know, I made damn sure I got to visit Patti Smith at home in New York, even if it meant sort of <laughs> manoeuvring my way into that illustrious company. And I don't mean that in the wrong way. Yes, it was my daughter's ninth birthday, and I took her, we, she wanted to see the IMAX 3D cinema in, in Waterloo. And they give you a sort of trailer of what it's going to be like. And uh, Elsa burst into tears immediately, and I was terrified myself. So I, so I called my friend, who was with Patty Smith at Shepherd's Bush Empire, saying, you know, is there any chance I could sort of bring my girl along to, to, to see Patty? And somehow, without mobile phones, we, we got in, and it was Elsa's first concert, and we did go backstage, and Patty gave Elsa the ribbon from her hair and said, welcome to rock and roll. Um, That's a thing to cherish. So, so that, yes, I mean, in, in part it, it was journalism, but in part it was just determination to hear the musicians talk about their music because that's what they like doing, really, in my experience. If you talk to a painter about what is this painting about, you might get quite a boring answer. If you ask a painter about how they, how they used a background to achieve that colour, then you're in business. And I realise that's what musicians really like to talk about. 
Now, the other instance of words failing notoriously is war, and there's a lot of war in this book. You've done a lot of war. It seems from your description that you kind of fell into it by accident. You'd become an Italian correspondent and somebody rang you up and said, there's something weird going on in Slovenia. Can you take a look? Yes, I've done far too much war. I regret it. My life is, is, is a long list of regrets. Shostakovich said famously once, I know we're all supposed to agree with Edith Piaf, ne regrette rien, but oh, I, if I had my time again, I'd do it all very differently. And as, as um, so often I'm with Shostakovich on that one. And war is part of that. The only war I ever went to of my own volition was Ireland when I was a student at Oxford, got the scholarship, hooray, hooray. And it was 1972 and it was all just very weird that somehow we claimed this corner of our country, but no one seemed to give a damn what was happening there, even though it was a, at that time appalling in all directions. So uh, the way around that problem was to do an undergraduate thesis on Northern Ireland, spend my second year more in Belfast than among the Dreaming Spires, thank God. But that, you know, I, I, I didn't seek war after that at all. And, yeah, as you say, I, I finally achieved my ambition to, to live in Italy for four years. But during the first year there, I did get this call from the foreign desk saying something weird going on in Slovenia in the Yugoslav army mobilising against a bunch of farmers. What's going on? You're next door. Could you rent a car in Trieste and try and find out? And my brief had been to, to live in Italy, cover Italy, keep an eye on Yugoslavia. And I ended up in the abyss of, well, first Croatia, then Bosnia-Herzegovina, keeping an eye on my flat in Rome, sadly. And what did you find? I mean, you know, you say you don't want, you haven't gone to wars voluntarily, you don't, you say, well, there's a line in the book, you say, unlike others, I don't like them. I mean, some people, I know Anthony Lloyd's talked about war being an addictive thing to go into. Why is it you feel you find it, you experience it differently, and some people seem to kind of get the bug and want to go back? Yes, and Anthony has written very bravely about heroin too, and that's addictive, and he seems to be addicted to both. I'm not. I'm the reverse. I, I, I've never taken heroin, and I hate war. That's why I write about it. I'm not talking about Anthony Lloyd now, for sure, but you know, some war correspondents do quite like war. It gives them a sense of purpose, at best, which I've never really felt. And at worst, they quite like the bang-bang-shoot-shoot. They're interested in military strategy and ordnance. You know, they're ex-soldiers or wannabe soldiers. I come from completely the opposite direction. My father was a a pacifist between 1939 and 1941. And in 1941, he writes a very erudite letter to his mother, who is of Irish Republican stock, deeply Catholic. And he says, I've realised that pacifism cannot be absolute and I'm going to join a competent unit of the British Army, which I think is the only way to stop what's happening in Europe, and which is not exactly her favourite institution. And she writes back saying, dear boy, there are come times when you men make it necessary to choose between evils, good adventures, young man, so off goes dad to war, hating every minute of it, apart from the opportunity to sketch Italian Renaissance architecture on the way back through, on the advance through Italy. And I hate war. He hated war more when he got back in 1945 than he had done keeping the company of Quakers before he knew what it was like. And I'm the same. I'm with Edwin Starr. You know, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. I'm not a pacifist, but when I'm in discussion with Quakers or followers of Gandhi or Prem Rawat or even Pope Francis, you know, I know they're right and I'm wrong. And that's always been my premise. War is awful. War is invariably pointless. Soldiery doesn't interest me. On the other hand, there was something addictive about the courage of plumbers and carpenters and school teachers who had to pick up arms 
to defend their city of Sarajevo or their villages and towns all over Bosnia-Herzegovina when suddenly a bunch of evil, mad, nasty, genocidal maniacs decided that they all had to go or be killed. Also, to bring it back to the connection with war and music, there's this striking moment when you're absolutely new, you know, you're kind of being blooded as somebody who's experienced coming under fire and into harm's way, and you end up in the bar with Robert Fox, then this veteran war reporter himself, and he gives you a Walkman. You talk about that. Yes, my, my first sort of experience of war was not actually in Bosnia-Herzegovina, although that's where I learned the hard way about the essence of war. It was in Vukovar in eastern Croatia. And Robert Fox of the Daily Telegraph, who was a much more seasoned, cynical and better mentally better armoured reporter than I was at the time, we had covered the siege of, of Vukovar and other towns around. And it got too intense and we took a break behind the lines at a town called Nasice and pitched up at the Park Hotel and there they were in the bar, Robert, I, a couple of others. I was in a bad way and he could see that. He said, Ed, you know, don't sit down here, you know, banging on with the rest of us. Here, take this, go upstairs, listen. When in doubt, he said, Beethoven. I went up to my sparse room, put the cassette in, headphones on, listen, the Beethoven Seventh Symphony, and I was in buckets of tears within seconds because I'd been trying to find the adjectives. We'd been under fire, in cellars. That was the first time I saw refugees coming across cornfields through the smoke and ashes, carrying what they could. And... Then we were filing what we could down the phone, scribbling in notebooks, the words, the words, the words. I, I didn't have any, and Beethoven did it. And music, you know, you say in the book, music, you know, war doesn't get rid of the music. It doesn't, you know, so sure, there's all sorts of instances of music that's, that's risen to the challenge of war, not only as a way of sort of healing and giving voice to emotions for reporters, but you write about particularly, you know, one of the classics of wartime music, Shostakovich. Can you say why that particular Shostakovich is, you know, Leningrad Symphony is so important? Yes, it began in Sarajevo, really, during the siege, where there had to be music. There was a, a series of lunchtime chamber concerts in the blacked-out theatre. I went to one on, on my 41st birthday. There was rock under siege. Soldiers would sneak back from the front to be alive, to be the teenagers they were, and drink very dangerous homemade brandy and listen to not very good but um, defiant rock and roll in, in Sarajevo. I was going to say, was it the 41st birthday concert you, you attended where the quartet had become a trio? There's that terrible kind of detail that... On his way to rehearsals, one of the violinists was hit by a mortar. Yes, that was unforgettable. And in a way, I suppose that was actually the, the genesis of my fascination with Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony. Yes, it was my 41st birthday. I'd covered a massacre the day before. I felt like doing something different, went to hear them play Haydn. And it was due to be a concert by the Sarajevo String Quartet, but the second violinist was killed by a mortar on his way to the rehearsal. So they adapted a piano trio for three strings, violin, viola, cello. And the Serbs were shelling, and one shell came so close to the theatre that the building shook and the viola player's stand fell over and the score onto the floor. And there was this awful moment. What happens? He picked up his stand, replaced the score, and the lead violinist, a man called Jevad, called the number of the bar, and the trio played on. And now that, again, that moment said more about music, war, and the siege of Sarajevo than anything I could write. Maybe not others, but not me. Out of Sarajevo, I became, I'd always loved Shostakovich. I was lucky to come to him early and young when the Leningrad Philharmonic came to the proms in 1971. For Soviet orchestras to come west during the Cold War was an exotic circumstance. 
you know, it's 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 not cliche to say that you know the Leningrad Phil can play Shostakovich in a way that you know nothing we heard in the West until until 1971 could could play. It was his orchestra. But after Sarajevo, I became aware of the Seventh Symphony having been written under siege, most of it. Shostakovich refused uh, a party order to evacuate Leningrad. He eventually went. And particularly by a performance of that symphony under siege in the summer of 1942, which I investigated. And it turned out that the Philharmonic had been evacuated along with the rest of the nomenclatura, but the radio orchestra had been instructed to stay during the awful winter of 1941-2, during which a million died of starvation alone. And uh, Zdanov, the awful Zdanov, head of sort of, well, head of pretty much everything in Leningrad at the time, decided we will play Comrade Shostakovich's great symphony. Well, this was a tall order because they, they assembled what was left of the radio orchestra after winter and 15 skeletons turned up, unable to move or blow much. But, you know, what Zdanov says goes, and they got the orchestra together, they assembled it, they fed it, they got military bands in from the front to augment it, and they played that symphony. Between 18 and 20 years ago, I found three of the four then still living musicians who played that night. They think that the concert changed the war, that it was the turning of the gyre. It so happens that that's, it was after that that the panzer divisions did start to retreat, probably because of what Markel Zhukov described as his two finest generals, January and February. But yes. um, it doesn't matter if the military historians disagree with those people. That's what they think. And there it was. The, the, the symphony was played under the baton of Karl Eliasberg. And not only is that a remarkable circumstance, but I think, you know, if we're looking for a piece of music that talks not just about this war or that war or even the siege of Leningrad, but the essence of war, the pity of war, the, the horror and depth of emotion to which war appeals in the worst and in a sort of strange way, the best way, as explained by those musicians. It is the, the adagio of the Shostakovich Seventh Symphony, the Leningrad. Now, you don't like war you don't go to war deliberately. But war came to you when you were living in New York in 9-11. I mean, you were right right on the spot, weren't you? Again, how did you respond to that? Did you sort of, you know, you saw the towers come down, you did the thing a lot of people do, walking towards them, and then, <laughs> then walking away when the second one came down, or running away when the second one came down. Did you know then, oh, Christ, I'm going to go back to war? That's a very good question, Sam, because sort of yes. I don't know why. My attempt to live the Dolce Vita having slightly been derailed in Italy. You know, I tried again in New York, thanks again to the posting of the paper. This isn't me wandering around the world of my own volition, with my own money. And uh, yes, within a short period, one fine September morning, Al-Qaeda comes in and slightly changes the plan. There is the, the, the story of all that. And I do remember hearing the story of Heathcliff O'Malley, who's a photographer who only does fashion and wars. I'm sure you'll know him from your work. But, <laughs> that, that he, you know, he watched the towers come down because he was there for New York Fashion Week and he immediately stopped shaving because he thought, I'm going to need to be somewhere where beards are normal in about six months. And I thought that was <laughs> such think, a weird reaction. I think um, most of us gave up shaving. There was a reaction by John Cale of the Velvet Underground. Only a musician can have an aural memory of that morning. And he said he was living right beneath the towers virtually. And he said, I saw this crowd running past my building and they didn't make a single sound because the powder was so thick on the pavement. 
um, you know, it takes a musician to remember such a visually nightmarish event with an aural image. So, yes, my reporting on 9-11 was inadequate because I'd been so traumatised by Bosnia. I wasn't traumatised enough by Ground Zero and the stench of what somebody pointed out was burning flesh in the town where many Jewish people live. Do you mean in a sense that for most of the people who were reporting it in New York correspondence, this was a new smell to them? Absolutely. And this was the first time they'd actually had to sort of cope with death on that scale. I wasn't sufficiently long out of Bosnia-Herzegovina to sort of to be shocked enough, outrageously. I mean, I was, of course, and, and reprimanded by some of my sort of left-wing friends for wearing an American flag around my wrist. But there was this awful sense of foreboding as... New York reacted to the attacks with the peace sign and vigils and flowers, but America didn't generally react that way. It was vengeance. And yeah, there's no Toby Keith in this book. <laughs> no, there isn't. But I mean, as soon as you got upstate or out into the Midwest, it was quite clear sort of what was going to happen. And yes, you described Patty Smith was a bit of a sort of weather vane for exactly. this, wasn't she? Well, she later went on to write the great Iraq song, Radio Baghdad. But before that, as soon as 9-11 happened, she gave these New Year's Eve concerts at the Bowery Ballroom, which were wonderful concerts to go to. They were sort of, they felt like family gatherings. Many of the people there did know her. Those that didn't felt like they did. And there was something about her music at that time, which was sort of pregnant with the awfulness everybody knew was coming first through the sort of the the Afghan adventure, but more importantly, the upcoming horror in Iraq. And I was involved the hard way, actually, because the editor of The Observer at that time was a, was a keen supporter of the, of the invasion and the Blair Bush take on things. And everybody had this sense of how awful this is going to be. Sensible people were warning how awful it was going to be. And Patti Smith had a way of somehow, well, she discussed it afterwards, but before the war, she, you know, the music spoke to what was coming. She started playing Hendrix's Machine Gun. She had a song called Waiting Underground that she performed at these concerts, which the mood of which, the sonority of which was, had that limbo, that awful sort of no man's land between 9-11 and March 2003 when the horror show in Iraq began on the ground. It was there in the music before it happened when somehow you knew it was going to happen. What I didn't know was that I would be there too, which eventually I was. And again, you know, the war found me. And the um, thing is, your Iraq had a soundtrack. I mean, you describe how in Bosnia, I think every day you got through, you would play Pearl Jam's, you know, I'm Still Alive, <laughs> sort of black humour. But in Iraq, you only had one CD. Yes, it's an insane story. I decided to be unembedded, which was pretty risky, actually. And with a photographer called Steve Connors and a translator called Magdi, we drove around in a battered old GMC to all the areas you really shouldn't be going to. Naziria, Najaf, Fallujah, Rahmadi. These are now household names almost because they're where the, the insurgency started and where ISIS later took over. But we needed to know what, what was happening in terms of civilian casualties during the so-called liberation. That was the story that we needed to find out about in May 2003. So we, we wandered around for, for weeks in this GMC researching the story with, as you say, one CD, which was No Quarter by Plant and Page. And we must have played that CD 
scores of times and a track called Kashmir hundreds of times because Kashmir is, it, it takes a lot from Arabic chromatics with which Robert Plant is fascinated and on which he is expert. And it has that a sort of, it rises in quarters and eighths ominous and in, in, a, in, a, in an oriental chromatic. And as you say, it's, it's ominous, it is epic, it's huge. And we would do these awful interviews of, there was one of a, of a mother and father incapacitated in, this, in a ward near where the American soldier Jessica Lynch was supposedly snatched by the troops. But next door were these horror stories unfolding, mother and father who lost their family after being basically shot down at a roadblock in their car and a little girl had died of cold and so on. And um, every time we did these interviews, we would just play Kashmir. We spent a day with a with a man and his what was left of his of his cooked daughter and just played Kashmir. Played Kashmir as the sun went down, played Kashmir as we came into Baghdad and a surprise a suicide bomber blew up a gas station. Next thing we knew it was more sort of baked children, literally. I can't think of a better way to put it. Play Kashmir. Play Kashmir. Now you moved on again, war averse. Somebody doesn't want to report on wars. I'm curious, why did you go into what, at least if your riveting book-length account of it is anything to go by, quite as terrifying a situation as you have been in any of these hot wars, which is your reporting from Mexico and the Mexican border about drug gangs? Another good question, Sam, because my dictum that war finds me, not the other way around, is subverted by this one. Before 9-11, I had worked on the border, the US-Mexican border, for a strange story. Now, certainly, President George W. Bush wanted to open up that border to Mexican trucks so they could uh, drive all over the United States. They wouldn't have the, the shuttle system that, it, that, that pertains, well, had pertained for decades and still pertains now. How things change. Republican How policy. they do, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Bill Clinton had actually begun with things like Operation Hold the Line to seal the border. George Bush, for reasons of trade, wanted to open it up. And I, I was fascinated by this line in the sand that was simultaneously porous and harsh, that was sort of being militarised at the time already, and yet across which hundreds of millions of dollars annually of trade pass, thousands of trucks, uh, families would shop, you know, the family budget would, 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 you know, you buy your pastries in Mexico, your electronics in the United States. Um, so I, I devised that term then, actually, a Mexico. Then Iraq slightly sort of interrupted my fascination with that, with, with the border. By the time we got to sort of 2006, the narco war had begun. And I couldn't believe that all those places in which I'd had such a marvellous time, Ciudad Juarez, Nuevo Laredo, in northern Mexico, had now become war zones. I had, before I left, started reporting the appalling story of the feminicidio in Ciudad Juarez, the systematic mass abduction, violation, torture, mutilation and murder of young women, mostly working in the, in the sweatshop factories in Ciudad Juarez. And that was shocking enough in and of itself. With hindsight, it was a sort of grotesque prototype for a different kind of war, Bosnia, like Syria now, are wars you know, that belong sort of to the 19th and 20th centuries in so many awful ways. This was totally new. This is post-political, post-moral, nihilistic war about absolutely nothing. There is no cause, really. It's ostensibly about money and drug trafficking, but 
the cause is the violence itself, in a way. It's about nothing, and I became sort of darkly haunted by the awful nihilism of this new kind of war in a place I loved. So I decided to do two long summers, well, one long summer and one long summer autumn, winter of 2009, basically navigating the border to do a sort of dark war reporting travelogue through this terrain, which was then some of the most dangerous cities in the world. Ciudad Juarez became the most dangerous city in the world for four years during that time. This blurring of borders, this idea of you know a war that isn't a war and the war that comes comes back. I mean, we should maybe talk a little bit about what you describe as your as your shell shock about you know the way you can listen now to very very loud music without trouble. But you know, you you describe how in the book you had this terrible accident caused by a dissociative moment. Can you talk? Describe what happened to you there. Yes. The knowledge of war, the experience of war, leads you or can lead you to a bad place, a very bad place. It did for me, along with other things, not entirely relevant here, but the circumstances of my father's death, um, other issues. And one arrives at a point at which, in my case anyway, you're completely unable to handle police sirens. You can't handle the tannoys on the underground. I mean, the weird thing about London is people don't think it's weird to be shouted and barked at like that. Well, if you've got shell shock, it is horrible. You're completely unable to deal with sort of banal bureaucracy. You're completely unable to deal with sort of Eon charging you, you know, far more than you should and keeping my father cold for four months, which they did. You just can't handle it. And during work on the Mexican book... That was years and years without a holiday. And I made the mistake of going to a beautiful Greek island called Ikaria for five days, six days. Everybody said, don't do it, Eddie. Either go for two months or don't go at all. I was in bad shape. Uh, came back and simply couldn't take it. And the next day in the office, after being barked at at Edgware Road Station in Russia for a half an hour, I left the office on what the editor's secretary described as sea legs, called my partner and said, I'm just going to meet some people from Global Witness. I'll be home but she said apparently I, I said I'm off to meet Kenny Dalgleish she said are you drunk I said no it's three o'clock well I've had his a cup of tea she said to get a taxi I didn't I walked up the towpath at King's Cross furious at the demolition of all these lovely old buildings to build this monstrosity we call London nowadays and had what I call a grey art lost all colour and what was happening as I later realised talking to the shrinks is that a deep drill was going boom digging foundations for one of these awful buildings along the canal. I thought, as I realised later, it was shelling. I jumped for cover. I tell strangers I fell. I didn't. I jumped 15 feet, 5 metres, and completely smashed up my leg. So, yeah, badly, you know, 10 centimetres of, of fib and tip gone. There followed two years of basically various cocktails of morphine, what they call an Elizara frame, which is a kind of contraption that stretches the bones, which worked well for the Spanish Inquisition, worked very well on me. And it's interesting because when you're on all these opioids, I, I found all music terrifying. Somebody very kindly got me an iPod for hospital and I arranged for my daughters to download Don Giovanni and Traffic onto it and couldn't listen to anything. Somebody rather annoyed me by saying, oh, you must listen to this jazz, it'll make me feel better. I was like, ah, no, no, it's very odd. Then I came out slowly, started listening to jazz because it does things to time that time can't do. Bach, 
partitas in the well-tempered clavier because there's something in there that sort of reaches the other parts that music can't meet, probably mathematically. Drone music by John Cale because drone music sort of takes you into some other zone of, of longevity or brevity that is impossible to measure. Then I recalled something that the pianist Paul Lewis had been talking about and I met him again and it was about Schubert. He had been when I first met him, setting out on a two-and-a-half-year, four-continent tour of everything Schubert wrote for the piano after he knew he was dying. He was still in the throes of this, you know, after my accident. <laughs> and we talked again, and he said, the thing about you know Schubert is, well, let me put it this way, Beethoven takes you through the shadow of the valley of, gets you out the other side, it's all right in the end. Schubert leaves you completely nowhere. Schubert is the music of inconsequentiality. No coincidence that Schubert was Beckett's favourite composer. There was a lecture by Declan Gibbard, familiar to your listeners, no doubt, about Beckett setting up camp in the void at the Beckett Festival in Enniskillen. And, and actually, Gibbard specifically says this could be a reference to the no-man's-land-between trenches in the First World War that you know hung over Beckett's generation and life so much. And something clicked. I thought, yes, this is it. And I heard Paul and Mark Padmore performed the Winterreise at the Wigmore Hall. And when you get to the end of the Winterreise, when the wanderer meets the, the hurdy-gurdy man, and we all know who he is, this is it. It leaves you absolutely nowhere. He has got nowhere. And that's sort of, I think, where we are. Which is a suitably sombre note on which to end. Ed Volumi, thank you very much indeed. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.